Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition, to win at work, drive your career forwards, and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Monroe, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people, and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. As usual, I'm your host, Hannah Monroe, and joining me today is Michael Ryan. So now Michael is somebody that I followed on LinkedIn for a very long time. So hi, Michael. Fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks, Hannah. Delighted to be here. Wonderful. So maybe that we've got a few listeners that perhaps haven't come across some of the, the work that you do. Do you want to just tell us a bit about your journey and what you do around financial transformation? Okay, well, I'm the founder and managing partner of Finance Transformation UK, which is a boutique consultancy that I set up two years ago at the height of COVID in order to transform finance faster, as the tagline says. Um, As a result of that, we've actually had several innovations over the last two years, one of which is the development of Finance Transformation magazine, which is a quarterly uh, magazine that we send out which basically looks at the world of finance transformation from the point of view of what are the latest innovations, solutions, and best practice in order to help people deliver transformation. In terms of my own career, I've been doing this for the last nice and evenly 25 years, since 1996. During that period of time, I've worked for several large corporates. So I've worked for Whitbed Beer Company. I've worked for Argos. And I've worked for Deloitte Management Consulting and for Logica Management Consulting. And then for the last nine years, I've been an independent transformation consultant. So that's a very long time going through finance transformation and finance transformation project. I thought I was doing well with a decade, right? You have got me beat, Michael. You've absolutely got me beat. So how has financial transformation and particularly transformation projects changed over over that period? You know, 25 years is quite a span. Yeah, well, to be honest with you, I was actually uh, quite lucky. I started off doing my first project for Whitbread Beer Company, which was a fantastic company to work for. Um, it was probably one of the first, it's one of the few companies I've come across with a recognized project management group within its IT function back from 96, 97. And I learned an awful lot from those guys because my, my background is I'm an accountant, I'm a SEMA qualified accountant. And I rocked up to start running projects on behalf of finance to be met by the business process and IT team who were like, well, we're the professionals, Michael, you might want to sit down. <laughs> and I says, well, no, you're going to impact finance. So we need to get to know each other. And um, back then they were running projects as professionally as any project I've seen run since up to and including today. And they viewed project management as a discipline. It didn't matter whether it was transformation of finance or uh, Whitbread's extremely complex supply chain setup. The guys just had the discipline off pass and they could apply it to any part of the business. And I learned a ferocious amount from working alongside them, literally sitting alongside them for about four years. Like a lot of people, I started out as an accountant and then rapidly decided that, oh, accountancy, God, that'll drive you nuts from one month to the next. So I morphed into being a project manager or a finance project manager. And I was probably part of that cohort of people before somebody developed the apprentice program, which didn't exactly know what their career path was from about 1996 to 2001. God bless Alan Sugar. We all now know what a project manager is. 
<laughs> in those opening years at Whitbreads, I learned an awful lot. And if I would be honest about it, because I've actually done one or two other stories recently for people, if I was being honest about it, I would say the key to success hasn't changed. How it's applied and how successfully it's approached obviously varies from one group to the next. But the key to the success is without without a shadow of a doubt, how you actually treat the people that are involved in the project, not specifically the project team, which would have an element of project discipline and training within it, but the end users, the degree to which you onboard them, make them part of the project team, make them part of the journey is basically the key to success. And that hasn't changed in 25 years of the evolution to we're now dealing with data science, artificial intelligence, machine learning, the whole nine yards. And still somebody will stand up at the end of it and go, how do I get Joe Bloggs in a manufacturing site in Macclesfield to adopt this so that the system works? That part has not changed. In that, so that's really, that's a really important point because I think it's something that's often forgotten in technology projects in, in particular is that they focus so much on the gathering requirements, choosing the right technology that they don't invest enough in actually onboarding and and almost the vision and buy-in piece, as it were. So tell tell me, what do you think is the secret sauce to success in terms of adoption? Well, I would say, actually, I probably got to the bottom of what the secret sauce is in my third major role in the UK when I was working for Deloitte. And Deloitte taught me three things, which I have never forgotten. And I always find it amusing when people say they don't like to deal with big four consultants since I started in industry before I became one. And if you can't learn one something from one of them, then you're just not paying attention. But one of the most important things that Deloitte taught me was to define what is the exam question. So before we embark on spending well into seven figures on a major ERP system, we need to decide, we need to confirm what it is we're actually doing and why. And when the muck and bullets is flying 18 months later and everybody's fighting with one another, we can go back and go, what was the exam question we were solving? Oh, we said we had all these 75 faults. And we've changed that or haven't we changed it? We fixed two of them and wow, we just killed one another for 18 months. So that initial piece, which falls under the softer skill part, which is actually one of the key strengths of what Deloitte had as a consultant team at the time and probably still has today, is why are we doing this? In plain, simple English, what is the problem? And too many people skip to that because they become target fixated on the fact that a piece of kit, some piece of software will solve a problem for them. But they haven't defined that problem, written it down nicely in English and quantified it. The second step is where an awful lot of people get lost. They'll probably all say to you, oh, we know it was a problem. And anecdotally, they'll quote some nonsense to you, which happens once a quarter. But they've never sat and measured it. So they've never gone, this costs us this amount of man hours. This costs us this amount of money. And it screws up some other downstream process or it severely impacts the business's capacity to deliver frontline services. If you've not actually gone through that cycle, well, then you shouldn't basically be allowed to spend money on a new ERP system. I tell everybody that they must define the exam question first. Uh, people get hung up on the vision and what the future looks like, and that's great. We all need to know where we're going, but we most definitely need to remember why we're attempting to go there in the first place. And what does that salute, that problem definition process look like for you when it's done well? Um, well, it's 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 probably the most important investment in a project. If you consider that most transformation projects will go on well beyond 18 months in, in large-scale companies. Um, the initial feasibility business case piece is generally shoehorned into about three months, uh, depending upon the size of the operation you're dealing with. The opening week, the key executive stakeholder sessions, that's basically where the vision and the problem statement are defined. And in order to get that done well, you must have the highest stakeholders in the business involved. 
because what you want at the end of it is endorsement from the highest level. So this is CFO four. So we'll say from the CFO to go, this is the problem. I want it fixed. And this is the vision as to how it's to be fixed. And uh, apart from defining the exam question, what everybody goes looking for is executive approval of the project. You want somebody to stand out in front of it and go, uh, this is where we're going. This is the reason why. And I'm bringing you all along with me. And what's an investment of what generally turns out, even with the wrap up and all of it, three to four days worth of effort is possibly the most important four days of an entire transformation program. If you skip this step because you think you know what the answer is, then you will end up with egg on your face about nine months later. It's a it's a really important piece because, like you say, how you can end up with quite competing problems, though, can't you? Because everyone can walk into that room with a different problem on their mind. How do you manage that? What is the process that you go through with? teams that you're working with to actually get to a sort of a final problem definition? Yeah, for me, it always comes down to the numbers. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So people will come in and they'll say they have a problem in the supply chain or they have a problem in marketing or a problem in manufacturing or distribution or whatever. Um, that's all fine. So you, you've come to the table to represent your part of the business. You have explained what it is you think is the problem from your perspective. Somebody else needs to put that in context from one end to the other with regards to the business and what the business is there to do. And the context always comes from the numbers. What's the size of the problem? What's it worth? What causes, what problems does it cause downstream? And what does it cost to fix it? So you will end up ranking what it is the options are that a business faces in order to address its problems. And that comes out of the fact that you need to provide context around what you're saying is the difficulty for your particular part of the business. And in terms of how you set up and structure a major transformation program, you're going to establish the governance in that room, which determines how a decision is made. And generally, the CFO will be the decision maker in that process where you end up with competing business functions who say, I've got a problem and the other guy's going, I've got a problem too. And then we put that in relativity and we determine from the better, bigger position of the business, which one we should focus on first. So it all comes down to that conversational piece and proving it in numbers. So we've talked a lot about sort of defining the problem as being one of the big issues that a lot of customers that you work with and custom, you know, teams that you work with don't do. What other big, like big mistakes do you see with transformation projects? Well, actually, to be honest, the one that I hammer home to people is everybody's familiar with what the target operating model is. So we discussed briefly there what the, the vision for the future. And the vision for the future gets broken down into a series of options as to what way we want to go. So we could, for example, adopt a BPO model. We could adopt a captive shared services model. We could adopt a hybrid of the two. When it comes to finance transformation, these are some of the options that we go through. But the, the fixation, as I said earlier, on what the future is and what the potential solution is and the target operating model, for me, there's a step that goes before that, which actually does it go a long way to ensure success it contributes to success but it goes a long way to ensuring you don't fail and that's the current operating model or the com which never gets referred to everybody knows what a tom is they don't know what a com is and basically if you invested enough time in understanding your existing model to the same extent that which people invest in the design of a target operating model you would influence which of the target operating model options you have is the best one to go with but you would learn an awful lot 
And you will find that what you learn in those opening weeks in, a sta- in determining how you're currently structured, how you're set up and how effectively you're working, it will influence what kind of solution you go for. But it will also influence where you put the emphasis when it comes to implementation and the dreaded go live where everybody sits back and goes, oh, my God, I hope the system works tomorrow. See, if you don't really understand where, where you're starting from, it's very difficult to ensure that you deliver success because you're not comparing one with the other. And what I find is clients... They don't focus on this. They get target fixated on what, what the potential solution is and what the future could look like and that the future solves the problem. And coming back to defining the problem statement and the exam question, understanding the current operating model, just it delivers gems. It really does. Because what I found in 25 years of doing this, people think it's software that solves the problem for the long term, but it's not. It's actually the people that solve the problem because in invariably, in a lot of instances, it's the people who are causing the problem. And it's, you know, uh, I actually have another speech to deliver on how you get adoption of uh, new system changes. And it, it comes down to the fact that you've got to involve everybody, get them to understand and contribute to and embrace the change. And these things are, for me, it's like, there's no sense in pulling yourself out, out of the selection process with the best ERP system if, to be honest with you, the problem is the two of your departments just don't speak to one another or the organizational design which links finance to procurement is flawed and nobody knows how to ensure a decision takes place. Um, that's led to the development over the years of global process owners across purchase to pay and then in other areas such as ordered cash and report to report. Um, and what you're doing there is you're bridging the gap to prevent silos in, in departments in order to ensure that the whole process works. Um, but it all comes down to whether... The guy in one place is talking to the guy in the other and that they can work together. And so if it's, it's very tempting to skip at the start of a project involving everybody because people seem to think, oh, well, not everybody will agree with us and go, well, okay, they might not. But if you take an approach of ignoring them in the first place, they most definitely won't agree with you. So it helps to flush out what everybody is thinking. So still for me, it comes down to if you can't engage and talk to the people who currently use the process, um, you're going to struggle to get them to use a new system. I think that's a really good point. So there is a tendency for people to try and go around barriers. And I think that's always um, a big mistake. It's not, don't get me wrong, you need to think about how you approach those individuals that have strong uh, feelings, shall we say, or sort of big concerns. But there, there is there is a piece about addressing it early on in the project isn't there rather than later on it will certainly my personal opinion um in, in terms of uh, you know if you want the long-term success you, you involve people from the start of this now obviously you have to be sensible about this the initial part when you determine whether you have a high level business case to actually engage in a major change program that's done at the top end of the pyramid if you involve absolutely everybody in that beneath a certain management level you'd cause more problems than anything else but once you get off that stage and somebody at the board level has said I'm putting my thumb on this, you go ahead. Then you need to do the deeper level feasibility study, which flushes out what the problems are. So then everybody becomes aware of what the problem statement, the exam question is. Everybody becomes familiar with what the vision is. The vision is broken down into bite-sized chunks that everybody from an accounts payable clerk to the person who runs the FP&A team, they get it and it's easy for them to remember and they want to go in that particular direction. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good shout. So 
what, have you got any top tips? Because conflict, you know, the transformation does create conflict. It doesn't, I, in my personal opinion, it doesn't matter how amazing you are at managing change. At some point during any transformation project, because you're dealing with people and because you're dealing with change itself, there's always going to be some kind of pushback. So have you got any top tips from your experience about how you approach whereas maybe somebody doesn't want to, to change or to, to shift? The, the most important thing is to have a structure. So once you've decided that you definitely have a project and you want to go ahead with this, it's important to communicate regularly to everybody who's likely to be impacted. And part of that is just being clear to them who's running the program, who's involved in the project team, what their responsibilities are, and more importantly, how decisions are made. So that you can create the mechanism for when you find the conflict, how you resolve it. Now, if you skip over this, all you're going to have is a situation in which people rub up against one another, but there's no way to relieve that. I mean, that, that's, you know, if you, want to, if you want to get this to work, structure it so that people understand what the route is when there is a problem in order to get to a resolution, and then people are more likely to accept it. When you start your projects, you need to be realistic. Nobody in their right mind is going to accept a major transformation program and actually just blindly accept everything that they're told. You have to be prepared to, to actually deal with challenge. And part of that comes down to the strength of character of the leadership involved. And when you pick your program leads and the individual stream leads, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they need to stick together. They need to stand up for what it is that the program is attempting to do, live and breed it. Um, and they need to be strong because they will face adversity. And what you don't want to do is start giving in to every little change and actually then lose the thrust of what you're attempting to achieve. And that does come down to, in my honest opinion, so we talk about the people from the point of view of do they accept the change, but there's also an element in terms of running a program where a degree of backbone is required to ensure that the train goes in the direction it's set out to go to. So those, those things are important. In terms of executive approval and executive support, it's always best that when you have some class of a um, quarterly roundtable or quarterly roadshow or update or town hall, as they call them, that the top man or woman is standing up front and going, I still endorse the program. This is what we're attempting to achieve. This is the reasons for it. None of that has changed. These are the things we've started to accomplish. We are moving and you, you demonstrate and change. And there will always be resistance at line levels beneath that, but you're showing that we've, we're going this way and you're either coming with me or you're not. Yeah. And that's the last thing I'd say as well is you need to be realistic. So I've worked for professionally for 25 years. Within that time, I spent three five-year periods with three major employers. I think most people seem to think they could spend two to three years these days with a particular employer. Uh, so let's be realistic. A transformation program to be successful in a major corporate would take two to three years. Um, so within that, the people who start the program are not necessarily the people who finish the program. And when you run a transformation program, it's probably the first time in which anybody realistically takes a good look in the mirror and says, have we the right processes? Have we the right systems? And then they'll ultimately ask, have we the right people? So allow for the fact that aside from the redundancy element that gets built into business cases, you may find that when you enter the brave new world, it's a different type of, type of person you need. So you need to approach it in a professional and rigorous manner because you're not going to have the same staff at the end of the journey as you had at the start. And you don't necessarily want them either, because I don't know about you, but certainly when I speak to some companies, there's some people that really thrive off a fair transformation project. They love the implementation process. They love figuring out a new system. It, it kind of, 
it gets them excited. And those people are brilliant to lead and to drive the change, but they aren't going to be happy with doing the day-to-day necessarily once the system's in place. So you know, we talk about a, you know, a C- CEO for all seasons and sometimes a CFO for all seasons. But I think there is you know, certain individuals within finance that you might want to bring in, like you say, on a few years basis, but they may not be who you want afterwards. No, that is the case. I mean, the type of individuals who like a project environment and a change environment are typically different to the type of individuals who staff your business as usual teams. But from a, a, the program team will change over the life of, of a reasonable sized project, but the actual business as usual staff will as well. So you have to allow for the fact that people, so in the very nature of the typical individual, most people don't put their hand up for change. If we all put our hand up for change, every time we looked in the mirror, we went to shave or put our makeup on in the morning, we'd go, I need to drop half a stone, I'm going on a diet. And most people just don't do that. Organizations don't do it either. You got to work, you rock up, you sit at your desk, you don't turn around and go, oh my God, we're overstaffed. We're inefficient, what am I going to do about it today? People just don't do it. They just do their jobs. So when transformation programs come along, it's like, oh, 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 oh. And then we all start to look at one another. And that puts people under a pressure and strain that they're not necessarily suited to. And that in itself throws up friction and tension, which needs to be carefully managed so that people aren't, I suppose, put under undue stress in the performance of their jobs. But it generally means that the business as usual staff are not necessarily, on the whole, the right staff to be the business as usual staff three years down the line when the transformation is complete. Um, And this is where the design of the organization for the future is not just How many people do we need in how many seats to process how many documents or how many general journal entries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's what type of person do I need to do that so that it's a benefit to them that they want to do it. We as an organization benefit and then the two gel and we're an awful lot better off than we were before we started. So there is always fallout. I've never been on any program that started and finished with the same business as usual team. That's a, that's a really good shout. I think it's true at all levels, isn't it? Because obviously we talked a lot about sort of large transformation projects, but there is it comes all the way down, I think, especially in the market at the moment, there's a lot of movement. And I guess with that shift as well, there's a conversation about as you go through the program, how do you document the changes and the decisions that you're making so that somebody down the track and understand why you made them almost work their way back. Yeah. I mean, it's on the bigger programs, you you need to track through like how we're making the change, why we're making the change, the initial design. So you're basically trying to end up with some class of a global template design for which there'll be percentage exceptions of about 10%. It's the exceptions you have to watch. You want to get the thrust of it to work. And then of course, there'll always be some country, business unit, division, whatever that says, oh, we're different for this reason. And when you want to get, it's like an ERP implementation over the line, you want to get the thrust of it over the line and there may well be a phase two or a phase three to, to mop that up. But the exceptions need to be properly documented. And this comes down to the skill of the change management teams within all this. Sometimes that's just skipped over almost like as a tick on a project meeting. We've not done this. We will do this in phase two. And it's like, right, okay, well, could you at least write down three to four paragraphs as to why we decided to leave this to phase two? Because what generally happens is that the next program manager comes in to manage phase two and they're going, why did we do this? So the documentation of why major decisions are made shouldn't be buried within the minute minute of a project management team meeting minutes. Yeah, no, that's a really good shout. So anyone that's managing a project of this sort, make sure that you've got a separate place to manage and document decisions that you're making through the project. Great to hear some uh, some examples. 
Now, I was only going to say, I mean, with the very nature of things, if you consider that even uh, re- smaller scale projects could last five to six months in order to introduce new software into just a particular team. So you put a new invoice processing software into an AP team. Um, how the thing starts off and how everybody thinks this is going to work is not necessarily the same place you end up in six months later or for the ERP programs, 18 months later and so on and so forth. And it would be exactly the same if you were doing this in anything relative to your personal life. So there's no reason why you shouldn't go, well, okay, we started out going to go from A to B. For very good reasons during the course of the project, we decided that actually it would be everybody's best interest if we went from A to C. This is more efficient, it's more effective, more cost-effective, whatever. You just need to document the bridge from one to the other as to why you do that. So writing up why some of the key decisions made is important. That certainly shouldn't mean that they're not made. And one thing I do find with transformation programs is people are actually sometimes afraid of, well, the juggernaut is running. How do we slightly tilt it in a different direction? That just comes down to the strength of the program management. Absolutely. And I think there's an underestimation of what good program management looks like. And I think it's a challenge because obviously at an enterprise level, companies can afford to have dedicated program and project managers and project leads, etc. within there. And I think for me, one of the biggest challenges I think particularly for for mid-sized organizations is that that project management piece is often an expectation on existing finance staff which is a real challenge and I see it from the other side you know we're having to project try and project manage and not just obviously the consultants within our team and everything else but also the other side and all the the bits and pieces that go with that so it is program management and project management shouldn't be underestimated um couldn't agree with you more no, but to true, true program management at the highest level is, is a skill and a discipline all in its own right. And you don't need to be a subject matter expert whatsoever in order to do it. You need to be able to identify a problem and manage through. The, the entire job is about managing because it's not going to end up the way you said it was at the start of the day. So you need to be able to look at what's the decision I need to make, make that sensibly in the context of the wider piece and keep people on more on board with what you're doing and keep them moving forward. Your program management is all about stakeholder management and the ability to get results from competing resources who you don't understand their disciplines, but you understand how to arrive at a decision properly. Oh, absolutely. And again, I think the, the difference between project management and program management is quite vastly misunderstood. Um, and I'd love to get your take on how you see the differences between the two. Well, generally, even in terms of the evolution of my own career, most people can go from business as usual finance positions and become project managers. The extent to which they then go on further on down the journey and become consultants and so on, where they acquire more and different skills, that's fine. It suits some people. It doesn't suit all. But you'll generally find that project managers stay within the same company for five, six years at a time. Whereas program managers are obviously going to move around at least on an 18 month to two year cycle. They're going to have exposure and experience across a a range of uh, businesses and indeed a range of industries, but they're always going to deal at the top level. It's like a project manager can only run, I would say, a work stream. You require a program manager above that who understands that, well, to be honest with you, if I've got seven competing questions here, I'm deciding which one is most important. The project managers will only see it from their own perspective. It's a step change and a half. It's like, I don't know, division one football to the top four in the premiership is the difference, I would say, between program management and project management. And you've worked on quite a few different projects over the years. Have you, out of interest, have you ever said no to any projects? Have you looked at it and gone, there is no way that this project could succeed? 
I've, I have actually had no choice but to do that since I became an independent uh, nine, ten years ago. Obviously, when we worked for the big four, you did whatever project was handed down to you. So there's no issue with that. I mean, it had gone through one hell of a process before it ended up with any of us. And when you worked in industry before that for Argos and Whitbread, there was no debate over what you were going to do. There was a program of work and we would get on with it. But when you work as a, an independent or a boutique consultancy, you have to be very careful about what clients and what projects you take on. So your degree of due diligence checking on what's feasible from what it is they're telling you is actually quite important. And, and I do regularly turn down work on the basis that I think that's just, uh, I suppose, what's the best expression? It has too many landmines um, and we could all tie ourselves up in it for two years. And you know, at the end of it, well, well, you know, it was just not worth it from that perspective. Um, and the, the challenge is, is spotting them. And that's the challenge. And, and a lot of it comes down to some of the stuff I said at the start, where you have programs that are well structured, well understood, well-documented, well-communicated, they have a vastly greater chance of success. They just need somebody to manage through the change. The businesses that possess none of that, uh, they're the ones where you have to say to yourself, "Mm, okay, I need to look at this in a bit more detail. And in my experience, you will discover within the first 48 hours of being on site at any client, 75% of what they didn't tell you before you got there. Um, So I've started to introduce a cooling off period of a week. And when I learn more than I had learned before, I can go, right, okay, we may do this or we may not do this. Always interesting, isn't it? Like once you actually get into the nuts and bolts, you know, get under the hoods. Um, my uh, my other half is a, a car fiend, so I, I, yeah, I use that term. So um, once you get under the hood, it's amazing what you see and what you find. And certainly I see that a lot of things are not actually finances issue. And so there is... There's a question about, is it within your control to change? I think in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, and I do. I mean, I'd be honest about it. I do find that a lot of the business as usual finance teams can use that as an excuse. So they blame one of the other departments. So typically they'll blame procurement or they'll blame the dependent on the type of business it is, somebody in distribution, logistics, supply chain, manufacturing, something they don't understand. And they'll go, I can't deal with them. They don't give me what I want. I can't do this. They don't understand the knock-on effect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they become diverge, they diverge from one another in terms of whether they can work together as a team. Businesses do deploy process owners, global process owners, in order to attempt to do this. I think we touched upon this before. Um, they also deploy business partners to a huge extent in order to get ridiculously back office functions to actually work together. Um, when you would think that's exactly what they're there to do. Um, and these things are, in my opinion, they're sticking plasters to the fact that whoever heads the individual departments themselves don't communicate well enough at their at their own level and don't set sufficient direction down the line into their own staff. Basically, when I hear companies tell me that they've loads of process owners or they've loads of business partners, I say, right, okay, so there's loads of holes all over your all over your process. And basically, you just appointed people in order to run around cleaning up after them. Better run organizations do not have them to that extent. So in turn, when you hit those kind of challenges, maybe when, whether it's the responsibility of another team, how do you approach it? What sort of, what, what's your tactics for actually getting to grips with that issue? Uh, the tactics are, are, the, are the same as some of the stuff I flowed through earlier in the conversation. You basically have to get up and go and talk to them. In my earlier days, when I worked for Whitbread, I spent the entire time traveling the country and they were amazed to find that anybody from finance wanted to rock up to a brewery or a distribution center or any of the logistics sites and actually see how this worked. But people feel that you respect them 
when you do that. Now, obviously, in current times, the last two years with COVID and all the rest of it, that's less of an option. We're doing stuff like this in order to communicate with one another. But I mean, I've worked in organizations where they've had all the video conferencing in long before anybody ever heard of COVID and they just never used it. They would just pick up the phone. Now, you would think that the easier thing is to pick up the phone. But actually, to be honest with you, you learn an awful lot body language wise when you're looking at somebody. You understand or you can appreciate to a greater extent how well your own message is coming across and landing at the other end. And sometimes you just have to front up and go and do that. Go visit them. It doesn't matter where they are. And in many of the projects that we've worked in, it's involved. You've had to fly to another country in order to see them. But if you do that, you gain respect, you gain a degree of buy-in, but you also establish a rapport for when the problems start and people start arguing and fighting with one another, which always happens in the course of these things. And the only way you're going to do that or break through that is people talking to each other. I think in every project I've done, I've run some form of roadshow where I've taken teams. Now, generally, if you think if you think of how a finance team has functioned, the people who run the accounts receivable or accounts payable teams... They're not necessarily middle to senior manager. They're kind of, in my opinion, maybe just a gentle level below that. And they don't necessarily have the professional confidence to go out and deal with a manager within the business or a director within the business. And what I do is I bring them out, get them out of their comfort zone and create an environment in which they are happy to talk uh, to someone who they perceive as more senior or does a job that they don't understand or is part of the business where they can't get their head around it and break some of those barriers down and build up their confidence. But it is still the only way to do this. You get in a car, you drive, you go see them or you fly, whichever way it is, depending upon the size of the business. But talking to people is is the key to all of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, people underestimate the the power of that, I think, sometimes. Um, you know, it is it is very different, especially as COVID's opened up. I've, it's given me flashbacks of how how different it is being on site face to face with somebody. Seeing, we talk about seeing the whites of their eyes and you can see that on Teams, but and it's better than phone. I will totally agree with that. But there is something to be said for, for sitting in a room and feeling the vibe, as it were. Yes, yes, yes. And, and uh, to be honest... I guess I've operated in many different environments and I always prefer the in-person team environment. I mean, I've managed teams that are extremely well run. If you look at any of the big four consultant teams, they could work remotely. They could work in front of you. You know, they're professional. They don't need minding. Um, You don't need to be sat in front of them in order to manage them. When you're dealing with teams that don't work for you, they work for the client. It's always better to go visit them and go see them and, and establish a, a level of rapport. The better run, best run businesses through COVID sort of seem to take the attitude that, well, you just can all go work from home. It's no problem. And the American corporates, of which we have a ton of them here in Ireland, said to everybody, don't need to see in the office for about two years. And they're feeling the effect of that because what they effectively did was they isolated their own staff. So they created mental health problems for their own teams. And when you consider that they are well-run, successful, highly profitable businesses in the first place, what they did was actually mildly flawed in terms of, you know, they could have thought this true. Now you have the opposite extreme. We have uh, Elon Musk now telling everybody, I think there was an email that went around, expect you to come to work. And to be frank with you, I, I would agree right. with him. You know, <laughs> um, it, it builds a team environment. It builds everything necessary and it gives you interpersonal skills which you don't get from this you don't get any of the uh should we say soft sell mentoring that goes on just by virtue of being in the office watching somebody else do their job that you aspire to do i don't think we need to come to the office five days of the week but i think we do need to allow for 60 percent of our time to be spent in face-to-face environments in which we can learn from one another at the end of the day we are human beings these are human skills are we going to just de-skill them so that people don't have them? And the next generation come along and go, I can work from Starbucks. I'm sitting here on my phone. This is easy. 
And then I, I present such a person with a challenge and they fall over in the morning. So, you know, the, you don't get the same level of professional, personal development from a remote environment. So the core of it should always be out of some form of an office. And then you know, you'd be perfectly reasonable with it after that in terms of, okay, so we're not all working on a Friday or we're not all working on a Wednesday or whatever day it is. But nothing should supersede the fact that a business is a, is a profitable enterprise, which is there in order to, you know, deliver value for its shareholders. And that's the object of the exercise, not to, you know. Yeah, no, and I think this is where we could do a whole podcast episode, right? On should we be working from home, right? And I'm I'm not an Elon Musk, right? And I'm not the American corporates, which is fully remote, right? I'm a bit like you on the fence. I think I'm I personally believe it depends on the individual. From anecdotally, and this is purely anecdotally, I've seen some individuals thrive in the working from home because it suits their style, their way of working and allows them to focus, right? Because if as an individual, they work better. I've seen the opposite, right? So for me, it's about having talented managers that can understand that difference and can make it work for all. But that's, that's a high ask, you know. I think this is the interesting part with this. So depending upon what part of the age spectrum you fell into, your experience of COVID working from home was different. If you were a young professional in your 20s with no immediate life partner or no children, you sat in an apartment on your own through this period of time. They are the people who wanted to go back into the office so that they got people to talk to, right? Then you saw all the people in their 30s and 40s who've settled down, they've married, they've one or two kids. They're dealing with the challenge of childcare plus the challenge of getting to the office, the commute, right? These are the people who have something to do before they get to work because they got to leave the kids somewhere these people suddenly turned around and went, wow, first of all, I have childcare savings costs. And secondly, I don't need to kill myself to get to the office. These people I have an awful lot of time for. They have responsibilities. Their start of the day and their end of the day in the office is pressured by the fact that they are first and foremost parents. So where you fell in this scale, or if you were beyond that and you have uh, grown up teenage children and they look after themselves or they've gone off to work or whatever is the story, mm-hmm. you viewed working from home or the flexibility that it gave you depending upon where you fell in that scale. The challenge that that creates is nobody staffs a team based on yeah. knowing uh, the exact composition that it wants yeah. age-wise or the composition that it wants from do you have family commitments, do you not have family commitments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, because we can't impose this on people. That's just not how society works. The challenge that that creates is for an entire swathe of middle managers who suddenly had to allow for the fact, well, my team is partially populated by youngsters who want to be in here in the office. And then it's partially populated by people who have child child care commitments. They don't want to be in the office, but they're generally the ones managing the other group. So what COVID really did was it exposed completely the management abilities, and indeed from a corporate perspective, the development and training invested in enabling somebody to manage another human being in the deployment of their work or the delivery of their work. And that is the real learning point out of the whole lot of it. If businesses don't allow for the fact that it's a pandemic or something else again in the future that brings everything to a halt and train people to be able to handle hybrid, the management of hybrid working teams, then they're just creating problems for themselves. I couldn't agree with you more, Michael. I think you've hit it spot on. And I think there's also a piece that even within those age pieces, individuals 
themselves are fundamentally different, you know, in terms of their self-motivation and all of those kind of things. And actually, I think you're right. What the pandemic has done, and not just for transformation projects, but for working in general, it's highlighted the real need for strong management and soft skills that we've undervalued for years. You know, we've just assumed that it was happening, you know, by um, and that whole micromanagement piece is a, such a challenge across everything. Well, well what, it's, what it's done is it's highlighted, do, do people actually understand what management is? And, and to be really fair, I mean, most people, they go to work because we get paid to go to work. If we're lucky, we get paid to go to work and we enjoy what we do. If we get luckier again, we end up doing something that the boss thinks we're good at and then we get promoted and then we get paid more money. And then we go on up the tree like this. But nobody, apart from somebody deciding that they wanted to play for Man United from the time they were 16, really picks out what they're going to end up doing at 50 years of age. If you told me when I was, I don't know, 16, that at 51, I'd be sitting here talking to you like this, I'd have you kidding me. What would we be talking about? Does she like football? <laughs> No, but I'll happily talk about rugby. Does that count? No, I'll We'll split the difference. <laughs> oh, brilliant. No, um, and do you know what, Michael? This has been a fabulous conversation, um, but I'm very aware of of your time. Um, and um, so you obviously have a huge wealth of knowledge around financial transformation and experience, of course, um, over the last 25 years. So what are your top tips for our listeners if they're going to be embarking on a financial transformation project, whether they are a small, medium or large enterprise? What are your top tips to actually kick it off and make it work? My number one top tip, and I'll give you this on the fair basis that I worked in industry before I became a consultant, hire a professional. You can't underestimate the value that you will get from somebody who's done this 10, 15 times before because it's what they do. At the end of the day, I wouldn't teach you how to run the FP&A team. You do it every single day. So, you know, hire a professional. The second part is be 100% clear on the exam question. The third part is make sure that the top boss, lady, man or woman, is prepared to stand up and tell the organization, this is the problem, this is the future, and this is what we're going to do about it. And do that at least once a quarter until the project is, is done. They're the three things that will ensure success. The fourth part, I would probably add in there, it doesn't matter whether it's technology, the people part runs through the whole thing. You know, uh, you got to look at it from the point of view who will be subjected to the change, Look at it from the point of view of the people who use the system. Look at it from the point of view of the people who will run the project for you. It's all people-focused, no matter how much artificial intelligence we end up with. It doesn't matter whether the cars drive themselves. Somebody needs to set the rules. So, you know, the people is just can't be lost sight of. And the fifth and final one, I won't go past five, is that you should measure everything. And Peter Drucker, who knew more about management than a whole lot of us combined, said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And he's 100% right. Because if you can't measure it, you've no clue whether you improved it. So don't be shy and don't be afraid to measure what you do. You do it every morning when you shave and you look in a mirror. <laughs> Love that. So thank you so much, Michael. You've been an incredible guest. And so obviously, I'm sure our listeners are sitting here going, the guy knows what he talks about. I'd like to learn more. How can they find about more about you, about the work that you do, and about the magazine that you were talking about earlier? Yeah. Um, we have combined all of it very, very nicely as of uh, only this week into one single offering within uh, the website, which is financetransformation.co.uk. 
Within that, you'll find all our consulting advisory services. You'll find all our conference speaking services. You'll meet the team. You'll find the Finance Transformation Magazine. And you'll find what we set up as an expert view series, which basically gives you the opinion of top class CEOs and CFOs on hot topics of interest. It's a, it's a wealth of information in one place and it's freely available. Just click on it, take a look on it. You want to have a talk about it. My two specialities are one, to help you start the finance transformation program successfully. And the second one is, is to provide assurance, which is to check on the success likelihood of an existing ongoing program. Happy to talk to you about either of those two. And if you have a great story, I'm happy to feature you in a magazine, which I'm sure we'll put Hannah in at some stage. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to be part of it. And for those of you that haven't seen the magazine, I, I checked out the latest issue, which is just released. And it's um, it is looking pretty awesome to be very fair. So for those of you that are interested, I will also pop the links to both Michael's profile on LinkedIn and also the link that he mentioned there in terms of the website into the show notes. Please do check it out. Um, some great content on there um, that will only help you in your financial transformation journey. So thank you again, Michael, for taking the time, particularly uh, for, even though this is not going out on a uh, on on a Friday. He's taking his Friday afternoon to spend talking with me about transformation, which I'm very, very grateful for. So um, thank you very much. and looking forward to sharing this with our listeners. And for our listeners, if you like this content, let us know. You know, do reach out to myself, send me a message. Tell me if you want more. So we, we need to get Michael back because he's so fabulous. So, and uh, yeah, don't forget to, to subscribe to the podcast and keep communication going just like you should in your next financial transformation project. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll speak to you soon. Okay, thanks very much, Anne.